and welcome back to the rewind i'm josh and this is a podcast where i watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends today's episode is about Bo is afraid joining me today first we had to pull him away from his traveling theater group to get him here it's elijah howard elijah have you called your mother today i'm literally a thousand years old okay <laughs> i don't have time for this <laughs> fair enough fair enough also joining us is the three wines resident therapist she would never call a patient's mother behind his back it's andrea dewitt andrea how are you <laughs> thank you uh i appreciate the vote of confidence <laughs> yeah of course of course i'm glad we have someone with uh andrea's expertise here for this one as well Bo's afraid is the newest film from ari aster his third collaboration with a24 after hereditary which was the first ever episode of the rewind and 2019's midsummer which eliza joined us for uh Bo is afraid tells the story of a man named Bo Wasserman who kind of lives by himself in this, uh, you know, uh, unidentified city, which kind of resembles like, you know, uh, a, a run, uh, a, this uh, overrun New York City. He kind of, he li- lives in this uh, beat down apartment, but at the same time, you know, has a mom who is kind of very famous and wealthy and he uh, makes plans to go see her. And uh, but while, while also at, we, we see him at his therapist place at the early in the movie, he gets some instructions to take some uh, anxiety meds, but only with water. And let's just say that those instructions don't get, you know, don't get followed completely. And we end up on a journey with Bo after he fails to catch a flight to go see his mom, who, let's just say, seems a little disappointed. And that sets him off on a journey that takes him everywhere from all the way around the corner, which might be the most treacherous trip he takes in the entire movie, to to the suburbs, to his mom's funeral. Or maybe not. I don't know. Because who knows what is what or what is real in this movie, but there's certainly uh, plenty to talk about it with. Uh, Elijah, I'll start with you. For about the last two months, we have been messaging each other every single piece of information that came came out about this movie. Because with every single thing we learned about it, it basically sounded increasingly unhinged. So my question for you is, did it live up to your expectations with respect to how crazy it would be? And if so, did you ultimately find that to be a good thing for Bo is Afraid? Yeah, I mean, right, we... <laughs> We saw some of the more uh, some of the wilder quotes about this movie over the last few months from Ari Aster himself calling it the Jewish Lord of the Rings to, you know, I think it was either David Sims or David Ehrlich, you know, said it was like the craziest film he's ever seen. I, I don't know. I for me, you know, I think I think for a lot of people, right, who are Ari Aster fans, this was kind of there's not really nobody was really sure what to expect when it became apparent that this wasn't going to be uh as as straightforward of a horror film Mm -hmm. as his other films i mean um and so i don't know i think for me i just kind of I, i started throwing out expectations fairly early on because I yeah I, how 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 you just got to go in to expect the unexpected once you hear everything we heard right it's not you know with with hereditary obviously there were, I I did not really know what to expect with that I watched um uh the strange thing about the Johnsons shortly before I saw hereditary because I was curious about Is that one of his short films? Yeah that was kind of the I think it was like his senior thesis project from from school or something uh yeah it was his thesis from AFI um and uh so I was just kind of curious, like what his style was. So I had that going into Hereditary. And then, you know, we talked about Midsommar that felt fit very nicely into my folk horror interests. 
So there was there was expectations to be had about that film. But for this, I mean, he's the guy's only made three films, and I think it's it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people were looking at this film as if he doesn't do something different, then he is just A24's horror guy. And I think that's really the only expect maybe not an expectation, but a hope that I had for this was can he can he show that he's got more going on than just kind of making heady psychologically influenced horror films, which are great. But, you know, I wanted something different. And that was really all I had going into this. And yeah, I'd say it's pretty, pretty fucking different. <laughs> well, so did it did he surprise you in a good way then? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Andrea, I, I, I'm curious because uh, I would have been very happy to have you on for this film, even if it had no therapy component. But it works out that it's well to have you here because it did. But given how eager you were to discuss it, I feel like that wasn't just because therapy plays a not insignificant role in this movie. So I'm curious, uh, what was the biggest thing about Bo is Afraid that stuck with you such that you felt compelled to actually want to talk about it? Well, I loved this movie. Mm -hmm. I thought it was phenomenal. I mm -hmm. loved both of uh, Ari Aster's other feature-length films as well. Hereditary is incredible. Loved Midsommar. I think I put this movie above Midsommar, actually. And I, I saw The Strange Thing About the Johnsons as well. And that was that was mm. quite something. Um, mm. I don't know what has happened to Ari Aster in his life, but it's <laughs> definitely themes of family dysfunction run through it. Um <laughs> And I mean, there's so much to process about this movie and break down, but more more so than the the therapist component and the therapist character, like mm -hmm. the family dynamics are fascinating. And it reminded me like in, in grad school, when I was um, getting my degree to become a therapist, a lot of projects we had to do um, had to do with um, like analyzing media. Like you could pick a character and like write a paper, do a presentation on a character and, you know, whether it was for, you know, pathologizing them or give somebody a diagnosis or analyze these family dynamics. This this film, if if it had come out when I was in grad school, I would have written a paper on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just I wanted to talk about it. I was like, I have to talk about this film. So, yeah, it's, it's funny you made the comment about what might have happened in Ari Aster's life, because I mean, I've read some interviews with him. I've listened to some interviews with him and I feel like and I'm also kind of curious just having seen the movie. So it's like I go to like the personal life section of his Wikipedia expecting to see something weird. And as far as I can tell, he's just like a Jewish guy from New York, you know, and there's certainly like a Jewish component of this movie. And it's very loaded what it means to be from a Jewish family and how that can be uh, depicted in like, you know, certain uh, certain media, but like, you know, that was obviously something that excited and intrigued both Elijah and I as Jewish people. But like, I, I, I watched the movie and I'm just like, you know, I guess certainly that is one kind of Jewish mom. But I, again, I, I come from a more functional family, I would say, than uh, whatever, fa whatever, what, whatever what the hell you want to call Bo's family. And, and so I'm like, but at the same time, like, so one, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm not necessarily going to relate to that part of it. And again, who knows exactly how uh, Ari Aster got there from his life, but like, just, you know, um, you don't have, you shouldn't have to like relate to a movie that closely just for it to like work for you. That, 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 that would be silly. Like, you know, it, it you know, the, you, you can tell a personal story like that and reach audiences who don't like directly personally relate to it. But I'm curious, like, you know, when you, when you sit down to watch something like this, that is just so, so clearly, you know, 
influenced by family. I, I guess my thought going in was I, I kind of respect that he's going for something very personal and specific here and hoping to reach a wide audience. So maybe not, maybe like that's a crazy expectation when you make a movie this bonkers, but like, I guess I kind of thought like going in, like I probably could have connected pretty well to this, even if I can't relate to any of the family stuff. If I had maybe just like connected with the characters a little more and I'm curious and I, I should say too, cause it's, you guys really liked it. And I would say, I like that it exists more than I like it is how I would say it. Like I am just, I, I, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, like if you talk about something like everything everywhere all at once and it's like, okay, like, you know, that must've been a fun pitch to make to a 24 or something like that. And like, how do you even like, how, how does something like that even get from the page to the screen? At least like there's the hook of it being like an action movie kind of at the same time with some kick-ass action. It's like, kudos to them for like wanting to fund this thing in the first place. Like, I think it's really cool that something like this exists. Uh, but like at the same time, I, I watched the whole entire thing being like, I don't know what is real. And none of these people feel like real people to me. It's incredibly surreal, but I appreciate the vibe he created. And that is kind of where I ultimately came down on it, where it's like, you know, until the Parker Posey character comes into the movie, which is like two and a half hours into this three hour movie, I was just like, I or I, I was just like, I don't really like feel like any of the, I, I don't know what to make of a single person in this movie. So I guess my question I pose to you, Elijah, is like, or maybe I should even start by asking like about Joaquin Phoenix's performance too. And like, you know, I guess I just found Bo as a character like very impenetrable. It's a very dialed back Joaquin Phoenix in a way for like a lot of the stuff we ever naturally see from him. I'm wondering, did you find it like difficult at all, like as an entry point, like just having to hang out with a guy like him? And if not, what about what he was doing like really worked for you? Yeah, I mean, I I find uh, dysfunction fascinating. Mm -hmm. I find, you know, really elemental and kind of specific portrayals of neurosis and mental illness and film to be fascinating so his portrayal of Bo, i thought i thought i mean i thought he did a great job personally mm -hmm. i thought he captured a lot of the manic energy but it was a lot of the moments of just him being able to seem like he like broke like he was you know that um were really fascinating and not i mean some of them are played for comedy but i thought there was a, an honest element to them that felt very um well observed and very talented from joaquin phoenix and i mean i know we've talked about him before on the podcast i'm, I'm a fan of his work i think he's very talented but for me i i was able to kind of appreciate it throughout as you noted this three-hour film mm -hmm. because i think Joaquin Phoenix and you know his uh, this is obviously in step with Ari Aster this performance is about inviting you into this world well maybe not inviting you maybe more dragging you kicking and screaming <laughs> but bringing you into his world right mm -hmm. we start from an uh an objective perspective shall we say something outside of his world and we're very quickly taken kind of through the the steps into uh you know and by the time we reach halfway through the film whether you've really whether you really notice it or not you're no longer seeing an objective perspective of the world you're seeing the world through his through Bo's point of view and i don't think you can accomplish that with a lesser performance hmm. i think the i think it would have been too either too obvious and thus you know kind of ham-fisted or 
too opaque which is certainly stuff you know it happens in film um mm. i think it was a perfectly balanced performance that you know it need it needs a good director for it and you need a talented actor for it and this had both so i yeah i guess and you, you already hit it a little bit about the fa- about, about the family dynamics of it Andrew and I, I even if I, I again I might have had trouble like really kind of like getting on the same wavelength of like trying to like you know see some of these characters as real people like I certainly kind of like from the first moment that Bo talks to his mom on the phone and is like I'm not going to make this fight um, and there's like a long like pause that like I mean honestly it's probably like 10 seconds but it feels like 10 minutes and uh, the mo- mom's like it's fine and uh, I, I'm curious like what really kind of like piqued your interest from like that point forth because it seems like the family dynamics were kind of like what inspired the dissertation that's been going on in your head since seeing this <laughs> yeah um clearly it was not fine with this <laughs> one, obviously are we trying to like avoid spoilers or like go in any sort of chronological order or because i don't want to like give something away because i think so much of this movie is about foreshadowing like I don't know. I wasn't vibing with the movie like as much as I am now through maybe the first hour and a half of it. Um, And it was only once the full dynamic of everything that was going on was revealed, was I able to put together what had been happening the whole time. And like, Mm. that was such a brilliant like twist of events for me that it just made me view the whole thing differently. Um, Yeah. Let's just, let's just say it now. Like, I mean, we're, 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 we're spo- we should spoil everything, especially because of how the movie is edited together. So say whatever you want. <laughs> okay. So in terms of your point about not being able to see people as real characters within this, mm-hmm. I understand that. And I think everything in this film is covered in a layer of motifs and themes. I should say, I see them as characters, but just like hard to like recognize them as like people. Right. Sure. Yeah. They're not realistic. Just like, like, I feel like the characters have an element of surrealism, just like everything else in the film. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'm just more generally on the wavelength of movies where it's like real people in these like kind of fantastical situations. And these people, Mm -hmm. they were like, they were already kind of like on their own crazy wavelength. And then while they were already in a surreal world on top of that. So I was just like, I guess I kind of found a hard, kind of found it hard to connect to personally. Yeah, that was actually one thing that I thought about Bo's character that I thought maybe could have been a little different because Bo is essentially a man who has been gaslit his entire life. Mm -hmm. Like this is a prime example of gaslighting, what his mother has done to him his whole life. And the result is this um, perception of the world as being just a scary, horrible place that you can't even walk across the street to get a glass of water without, you know, risking being stabbed or any other horrible thing that was going on outside his apartment. So I thought one one of my my favorite bits of of Bo's personality that comes through within that world is in the very beginning when he is just running full tilt sprint to get back to his apartment, Mm -hmm. but his his face is completely expressionless because he's so Mm. used to it. This is just the world. This is how it is. He's adapted to it. And I felt that the rest of the film, he didn't really do that. Like he was thrown into fantastical situations and he was kind of like, what, what's going on? Like he was a little (laughs) bit of an audience surrogate um, and uh, just a little bit too much acknowledging the strangeness. Whereas like, if this is his life, if this is what he has grown accustomed to, I feel like he would have been more like that flat faced man who was running full tilt sprint to get back to his apartment. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was one 
thing I had about Bo's character development. Um, but I feel everybody else, I, I loved the amount of, of surreal that, that the characters were and how not real they were. Cause, cause you know, it takes place in a, in a surreal abstract world. And I, I just feel that it worked on that level. So I, I didn't particularly care if it didn't work on a, on a realist level. Yeah. So we should say if we're spoiling it anyway, like, you know, the, the movies like, you know, you can kind of almost divide it up into four parts. There is a part that, you know, takes place like just outside of his apartment and across the street though, again, in like a very, very like uh, just crazy crime ridden version of this city that happens to look like uh, a, a street corner in like Brooklyn or Queens or something. Uh, and then a, a second part out in the suburbs in this house where he winds up and the third part in the forest where he winds up with his theater troupe. And then in the, the fourth one, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, which is like not not as long, but pretty significant. But uh, I'm I'm curious, Elijah. Like, I mean, if you want to put on your filmmaker hat for a minute and kind of talk about this first part that Andrea just kind of focused on right there. Like, what did you really appreciate about like that world that he created in this first part with like really just doing it between a an apartment and a bodega? I actually really loved the first part. Mm-hmm. Um, I I loved you know kind of the there was a like a texture and a specificity to it mm-hmm. that is kind of uh gone later in the film not for no reason there obviously there are narrative and psychological reasons that the world becomes more uh abstract and velvety as the movie goes on but <laughs> the in the early part i love how like crispy everything was <laughs> like there's just so much detail and i think uh, you know, as Andrew rightly pointed out, this it, it's possibly because this is the world that he has inhabited for so long. So every detail is so minutely observed. Everything is there is filled in. There's no empty corner of this uh, of this world, save for his apartment, which is kind of you know the ironic part. His his apartment is right, like pretty Spartan, <laughs> but it you know the the there was just a, an element to the way that everything was designed and shot, whether it's the, you know, g- g- like incredibly dense graffiti everywhere. Some mm-hmm. of which, if you actually take a second to read it is like totally insane. Hilarious. Uh, I Just to point on that, like one thing that I love so much about Astor's work is everything is so intentional and you don't catch those details until after you see the whole film, you don't realize the full weight of them. Like the the graffiti of the the guy who's got an erection and is ejaculating and he's got a little flag that says come. Like you don't realize the significance of come until the end of the film. It's so good. <laughs> or, uh, or, or Bo having uh, recently called movie phone in 2020 something, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, just, you know, little details like that to me helped to kind of uh as andrea said just sort of show that this this world despite its physical limits for Bo being a street corner pretty much is so um so specific and so kind of hyper real in a way and obviously you know the absurdity of the later part of the film uh the later parts of the film shall we say is fascinating and very engrossing but mm-hmm. there's it was almost something like 
like whitest kids you know level of comedy to the first section with you know the birthday boy stab man <laughs> just things like that that are just it's a it's a kind of comedy that really resonated with me i don't know why the guy hiding uh in the I'm ceiling the above the <laughs> above the bath like just just weird things like that um that i don't know that those got a lot of laughs from me so i have a theory about the guy above the bath okay you okay. guys let me know because everything is so abstract and i think can be interpreted in different ways and gage and dan and i were having a discussion last night and they interpreted uh the penis monster at the end in a completely different way than i did so hmm. uh i thought that was like the most obvious thing so i'm sure we'll get to that but um i was thinking maybe the the guy above the ceiling because he's in the bathtub and the bath is a pretty significant motif because it's part of his uh either memory or dream whatever you want to call it where his mother locks up either his brother or you know another version of himself whatever you think it represents but the the nightmare that Bo has where he's in the bathtub so I think it's significant that he's in the bathtub and you he sees this other man holding tight on the ceiling above him and I'm wondering if that maybe represents uh, the memory coming, literally crashing down onto him. Um, that was what I thought maybe that scene meant in hindsight. So I'm curious. I completely buy that, especially when you consider, I think that the first part of the film, right, is the kind of breakdown of the barrier. We start with his, his meeting with the therapist and then everything kind of goes to shit after that. But um, another absolutely yeah. brilliant, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Elijah. Another like brilliant piece of foreshadowing that I loved was in the therapist's office, he writes down the word guilty and that's it. It doesn't matter what Bo does for the rest of the film. It is already predetermined. And I love that. I love it for so sure. much. Yeah. And I think that's, that's right. The point is we're given all of these images and these context clues and you're right. A lot of them don't necessarily make sense until you've seen the rest of the movie. But I, I would agree that you can really read any of those things as kind of a, uh, a, you know, part of his psyche sort of crumbling in on itself in a way that, you know, he takes that bath, right. He takes the bath after he, gets the news that his his mother has died and it's kind of like one of these first moments of that image of or you know from his from his dream from his memory whatever you you know however you want to kind of uh you know assess that right like that it's literally falling in on him as you pointed out and i think that's that sort of a lot of the first section of this movie is everything going wrong is, you know, all of these elements that have been sort of held at the held at the barriers. And there obviously you can read into it as right. Like everything, start, everything bad starts to happen when he doesn't take the medicine the right way. <laughs> so maybe all of this is just a bad reaction to the medicine, but I think, you know, more so it's the image, the, or the, 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 uh, the metaphor, right. Of, the the drugs are not working they're not it's not it's not holding the floodgates anymore and everything is starting to collapse well sure and i and i'm curious though like and i'm not asking you andrea to actually put on your therapist hat for this because i don't necessarily hold the movie to that standard as like being you know 
hundred percent accurate with respect to like what, what happens when someone either goes off their meds or takes the meds the wrong way. But I'm curious, okay. how did that color the rest of the way you guys watch the movie? Cause like I start seeing this first half of the per- part of the movie and it, it looks like everything is going to shit for him when this thing with the meds happens. And at that point, I just like, I guess I'm, I'm too jaded of a movie watcher that I just assume that like, I'm supposed to watch a lot of this just like questioning whether or not any of it's actually happening the whole entire rest of the movie from that point forth. And I kept like expecting him to like wake up at some point. It was weird. It was like, honestly, for almost the entire runtime, I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, I just assumed it was like part of some long dream when he's like hanging out with Nathan, Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan in the suburbs. And it's like, it doesn't actually make any sense. You would end up in like some random house in the suburbs. Like this isn't real. That's not real. And I kind of like scolded myself towards the end for like thinking about the movie that way. Cause I don't think that's how you're supposed to watch the movie. Uh, you're supposed to like, you know, kind of take it in as you go and like make, make of it what you will not like try and guess what's real and what's not. But I find I found myself kind of doing that just because of where things went off the rails for Bo. I'm curious, did you watch this? Like kind of like just assuming none of this was actually happening. All of it was in his mind or it was just some mix of the two. And you didn't really find the need to be that like really hung up on it. I think I, I just, as you were talking, Josh, <laughs> that it was like profound what you, the way you just phrased everything, because that is how victims of gaslighting think. Mm. They think what is real, what is not. And I think something else that Astor does in this film that's so brilliant. Um, and I think it, maybe there were earlier clues, but definitely the biggest one to it um was uh the first one that i noticed was in the forest bit when um everything gets super meta and the the guy comes and hands a costume to um uh joaquin and says or Bo <laughs> and says we like to mix the players with the the audience or or something to that effect like mm-hmm. implying that the audience is a part of this play and then towards the end the the very last shot of the film when he's essentially on trial in the boat, the uh, you see the audience in the background and it is exactly mirrored to the audience that is watching the film with Bo in the boat in the middle. And then you see the audience in the background with the projector in the middle, mirroring your experience in the theater. And you see people just get up and file out as if nothing happened. <laughs> and I think one statement that Astor is trying to make with this film is that we are all players in this movie, in this thing we call life. So I think it's absolutely profound that he create in a movie about gaslighting, in my opinion, Hmm. he created an experience for you as the viewer in which you are questioning your own reality and what you're supposed to take away from it, because that is the purpose of gaslighting. It's fascinating. Interesting. Well, let me me take the opportunity to have like a a somewhat related detour. I got to ask you because you mentioned how it kind of mirrored the audience and you saw people within that, whatever you want to call it, arena or whatever in the movie at the end walking out. Did y'all showings have any walkouts from your audience? Not, no, not during the middle of the film. No. (laughs) What about you, Elijah? No, I I think oh, I man. mentioned to you my I, may, my theater maybe, experience was excellent. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe this is more of a byproduct of this because I I actually regularly see walkouts because it, it might be a byproduct of just like living in a really old part of Florida where a lot of old people live and just wander into movie theaters because they have nothing else to do. So, but like I don't think it was actually old people. Actually, I don't think it was old people that left my theater. But like I think honestly, pretty so these people made it pretty deep into the film and sat through a lot of effed up stuff. But I think they, I think they might've left at the end of the Parker Posey sequence, uh, like th- like two, two or three people. And then like, and there's only 10 people on my screening to begin with. 
those people walked out at that point. I guess they just, that was, for some reason, that was the breaking point, you know, not like any other, the 20 other fucked up things that happened before then. And then like, I stand up at the end and I look behind me at like, who's still there after the end of the movie. And there is a, and there is like, the first person I, I lock eyes with is like a 15 year old boy. And then it's his parents who like seem on the older side to have like 15 year olds. Imagine being 15 and seeing this movie with like your somewhat older parents. And then there was like, like, three other people like in front of me and that was it after the walkouts it was just a, a very odd theater experience and sounds like not at all like what 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 elijah had but you know you know it's it's, it's that's this movies for you. you never know what crowd you're going to see him with but no i i i i do i do i do appreciate the point that uh that that you made andrea and that like you know it's a different way to think about questioning everything you see in this particular movie because sometimes i find that kind of exhausting in in movies and just like don't like that like i have to it, it, movies of any like different kind of genres might kind of like traffic in that and like making you question anything that's actually happening at any point and i can often find that exhausting and i don't think they necessarily did anything wrong here in that regard it was just like kind of how i felt myself watching it but i like thinking about it as a way it's like hey you're, you're in a way you're kind of being put in both shoes here and i kind of like that you know i i kind of like i i like it makes me appreciate it a little more as someone that was like kind of mixed on the whole experience that was something that I absolutely thought mm. about. And I mean, Haley and I, this was kind of one of the first things we sort of discussed when we left the movie is just the portrayal of a of a worldview with internal consistency, even though it is clearly influenced by a number of, you know, uh, psychological factors, right? There is, there is these, uh, you know, things that happen in the film that are and maybe this is kind of to some degree maybe what you're talking about before josh where you weren't like it was hard to to say like if things were real or not mm -hmm. but i think the fact that kind of everything was treated with the same level of gravity was a, a really brilliant direction you know from ari aster right where i i think a problem that happens in a lot of film you know surreal films is that there is not in an internal consistency to the surreal quality mm. um, that, you know, things are just kind of thrown out there because we, uh, because the, there's a, there's a reliance the audience will make meaning for it. So I think this was, it was a, it was a very smart film in that it, as Andrea pointed out, it is, it, it, it's a film that's clearly aware that there is an audience watching and it's not giving the audience, it's giving the audience, I mean, I suppose it's giving the audience a lot of leeway to kind of, you know, assess the film and, you know, create their own kind of theory for it. Mm -hmm. But Frank, me personally, I frankly didn't really feel the need to, to do that. I thought that, you know, you can kind of read the film as text as what it's trying to portray well so in not doing to say that, that it's not to say that it's simple but it reminded me it reminded me a lot of um uh i'm thinking of ending things mm -hmm. which is another film that for you know better or for worse i know there's mixed opinions on it in this chat i think it's an amazing film but uh you know I, i'm thinking of ending things is another film that to me as a as a touch point had the, the same kind of internal consistency mm -hmm. where you're seeing things from a character's perspective and so no matter how crazy things get if the you know it's a wild oversimplification but the surreal element has internal logic and it's not 
it's not kind of left out there to float. It's it's done with a, a degree of intention to kind of make you as the audience contend with it with what you're seeing with exactly what you're seeing. Hmm. Well, so it's, well, so then if you're taking it in that way, like what is your reaction when he uh, when he wakes up in Amy Ryan and Nathan Wayne's home and is being pampered? I mean, right. Like, is there multiple ways to really read that? I mean, I think you can you can read into what he is uh into the the literal chain of events that got him there right like well i i I quickly chose not to do that because it made no sense to me so i'm like all right i'm not even going to attempt to do that i'm going to try and engage with this in some other way sure i mean and that's when and again maybe all of this conversation right there's a kind of level of difficulty with talking about it because so much of it really becomes clear later on right um but i think at by that point in the film i had kind of accepted that we're seeing the world the way that bo sees it and there's not really any two ways to to get around that right he we're we're seeing something that there probably is a level of reality to. Maybe he really did get hit by a car. Maybe that, you know, the people who hit him have taken him in, but we're seeing these exaggerated qualities. We're seeing what, what Bo sees of them. He doesn't see a normal family that's taken him in. He sees a dysfunctional couple with some kind of sinister overtone to their, to their jobs and their life. He sees you know, a daughter who, you know, immediately resents him and, you know, has this complicated, weird psychosexual opinion about him. (laughs) And we're seeing, I thought I I loved, I mean, it's a really simple and kind of silly character, but Jeeves, right? Like, I I don't know how many, uh, if you guys are up on your P.G. Woodhouse, but, you know, it's the character of Jeeves from P.G. Woodhouse's novels. Mm. Um, It's where the, the, the idea of Jeeves in general comes from, like, Ask Jeeves. Jeeves is a character in P.G. Woodhouse's novels, and oh. he's, like, the butler. Actually, mm. I think he's, a, he's technically a valet. But um, he's always sort of portrayed as this, like, not quite omniscient helper, but there is sort of like a magical quality about him. And so mm-hmm. I, I just immediately read that character as being like a sort of fucked up, like that's what that's what Bo sees of this person who is, you know, probably to some degree real, but is in in Bo's point of view, is this kind of like menacing manservant who is only there to to threaten him, <laughs> uh, to to sort of provide a a degree of edge to his existence in this house, and so sure. I I mean yeah I I don't know I think like I said I think the main thing for me is just by that point you have to kind of accept that there is a veneer over everything you're seeing. Well, sure. Well, also at the same time, like it's interesting that he, like he, they are, he is dropped into a world. that's like very, 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 um, where he's being coddled like a baby and doted on, uh, by this like mother and father when like at this point, like 
what the hell are we making of his relationship with his mother? And as far as he knows, uh, he never had a father. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, like based on what you had already kind of taken into that point in the movie, Andrea, uh, uh with, with respect to what we find out about Bo's family, what, what, what were you thinking about him all of a sudden now, like becoming a, a, what did you make of the way they portrayed him being a surrogate child for these people? Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I, I'm trying to, th- I didn't think too much about him being a surrogate child for this family because I guess that was still up to the point where I didn't really know what was going on. I was just kind of like in the experience waiting for it to take me. And now I'm viewing everything through the lens of what his mother did to him. So now with hindsight, I would say, you know, he, I think, like I said, I think he's been gaslit by his mother his entire life. And I think he, um, you know, is insecurely attached to his mother and we can talk about attachment theory if you want to, I can go on a tangent about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially I think he, you know, landed in this family, but he was doomed to repeat the dysfunctional family relationships that, that he has always had. Just like the foreshadowing in the therapist's office, guilty from the very beginning. And, you know, uh, let me talk about attachment theory just real quick, real quick. Uh, I was going to ask you to do it anyway. So please, please, please do so. And what, and what specifically about made you think about that? All right. So, so attachment theory, um, very, basically, con- <laughs> very basic concept in uh, psychology, infants and young, young children like toddlers need to form secure attachments with their primary caregivers in order to be able to have secure attachments later in life. So imagine an infant, right? It cries when it needs anything because it doesn't know any other way to communicate. If it has parents who consistently respond to it crying and figure out why it's crying and, you know, give it comfort, change its diaper, give it food, whatever it needs. uh, If they consistently respond to that, that child's going to form a secure attachment to their parent because they know that if they try to communicate via crying, um, then their parent's going to respond. And they're, they're not going to be in fear that their parent won't because their parent always has. So then you end up with a securely attached adult who's going to go on to form secure relationships where, you know, they're not worried that their partner's out there cheating on them. They feel secure. Um, they're going to be comfortable opening up and sharing and being emotionally vulnerable because their needs have always been met. Very basically. So then you have two different forms, well, really three different forms, but let's talk about the two main forms of insecure attachment. So imagine that same infant cries and wants to get their parents to, you know, come take care of whatever their needs are. And let's imagine the parent never does it, you know, 10 times out of 10, the parent does not respond. That child is going to learn. It doesn't matter what I do. The world is not going to take care of me. It, it just knows, doesn't matter what I do. And they are what is called insecure avoidant. So they grow up to form the kind of attachments where they put walls up. Doesn't matter what you do. They're not going to take those walls down. They're not going to be emotionally vulnerable with you. They're the type of people that are like, I don't need anybody. I don't need friends. I don't need relationships. They're kind of like, you know, they won't attach to anybody. Um, And then you have the third kind, which is insecure, anxious, And this, let's imagine that same child cries out for help and five times out of 10, the parent comes 
and takes care of their needs, but the other five times they don't. Mm. You might think that this would be better. It's not, it's worse because then the child will learn, okay, it's up to me because sometimes I get love. Sometimes I get comfort. So I just need to cry more. I need to, to do it more. Um, and they become so anxious and they internalize that. And they, these are the type of people who will go on in adult life to form very like clingy attachments, constantly needing external validation, like going bigger, doing crazy things to try and get attention or try and get, you know, partners in their lives. Well, so um, is it, is, is, is that the version that best describes Bo in your opinion? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because especially because his mother at the end is like, I showered you in so much love. I don't doubt that she did. You know, she's taken him on cruises. She's, you know, I'm sure she did nice things for him. But I, what made, but, me think, made me think that was him was like, she has a lot of money, but we see the apartment he's living in. Like he's like yeah. living in squalor. Not that like, yeah. you know, it's not also, you know, maybe he, at some point he should have gotten a real job and supported himself, but it's like, <laughs> he is a freaking rich mom and she is letting him live in squalor at the same time. Yeah. And so, you know, so it's like, obviously not like supporting him in every single way. Right. So my, my she is, is narcissistic and she does. Yes. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll get Absolutely. there. <laughs> and that's that's a common quality of parents who are like that, who form uh, insecure, anxious attachments with their toddlers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they will get, you know, upset at the child for expressing that they need that they need something, you know, those kind of parents will be like, why aren't, why are you being a difficult child? Why are you making my life hard? They make it about their own needs. It goes hand in hand. So yeah, I absolutely postulate that Bo is this third kind of, of attachment. I think he is insecurely anxious attached to his mother and he carried that, uh, attachment through to his relationship with his new surrogate family and that could represent his his relationship as an adult like he's always doomed to you know repeat the same patterns um i'm not sure thematically if that's what aster was trying to say but that's what i think of when i think of how does he fit into this new family i think he's playing out his his same role that his mother doomed him to Not to say that people with bad parents are like doomed to always repeat it, but uh, I think in 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 Bo's case, that is that is the case. Well, and and right, I think the the issue is that it's not his family, and mm-hmm. so he you can see to some degree, right? Like he is he it does kind of start to form some sort of relationship with Amy Ryan's character. Um, you know, there is. There is a degree of care there that he starts to reach for, but it completely breaks down because it's not his real family. And because the the draw, that that anxious draw of his actual mother is still there. It's not a clean break. It's not a fresh start. It's not a it's not a real new family. It's mm-hmm. just a it's another it's another layer of paint, so to speak, <laughs> which I think uh, no pun intended know, at all. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's, I, I think it it's, there's little things that kind of illustrate that beyond just, you know, the point of view that we see with Bo, where everybody is kind of this archetype, if you will, of, you know, some, something that he's uncomfortable with. But, you know, even things that are really subtle, like when uh, this family, you know, I, I don't know that we necessarily explicitly mentioned it, the family, Amy Ryan, Nathan Lane, Kylie Rogers, and also randomly Dennis Minochet, um, they they lost a son in 
I don't know if it's explicitly stated that it's the Iraq War, but I think that's kind of implied. And he, obviously, the dead son looms rather large over the family. They have a giant painting of him in their uh, dining room. I think there might be another painting somewhere. But more to the point, we see them doing a puzzle of his portrait at one point. And I loved the the kind of, like, Bo can't find the pieces that go mm-hmm. anywhere in the puzzle because it's not real because it's a this you know it, it, he cannot finish the puzzle for them he is not their real son and no no amount of you know this sort of uh constructed relationship is going to change that uh, and i think you know T- kylie rogers character the daughter she sees through that where maybe you know nathan lane and amy ryan's characters don't initially and it sort of all unravels when she puts it out in the open of course there are other things that lead to it you know unraveling but that's how kind of i i read that segment yeah yeah um uh she god that 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 girl's a terror huh I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think one of the things that stuck about that uh, stuck out about that segment to me too is just like it was, it was, it, like when Joaquin's performance really started to like kind of, um, kind of I don't I don't want to say click with me, but it really struck me like that he was doing something different than I kind of expected going in when I was watching it, and that like, uh, I mean, I think, it kind of impossibly like maybe like maybe i didn't quite understand it as i was watching it quite to the extent andrew did with the way she was able to just kind of you know break down attachment theory for him but like i feel like i got a really good sense of his character and like how he was trying to like adapt to that situation i realized that like how i did i i think like i heard someone else kind of describe it as like a recessive performance and how he just kind of like shrinks into that home and like i found that really fascinating because i guess i kind of went into it when i when i first was like oh is this going to be like a a guy going off his meds movie. And I guess I kind of expected him to just like kind of go crazy throughout. And it's more just that like, like, again, we we don't really fully know what is going on at any point, but like, I guess I just pretty much thought, okay, well I'm still here for the ride with him, but like he is, he is on the ride with us in a way. And I felt like I really saw that in his performance there. Can I just quickly, I just want to talk about Nathan Lane. Mm. Gave one of my favorite performances in. I mean, it's my favorite performance besides Joaquin Phoenix, and I thought Patty Lupone uh, was phenomenal. But uh, Nathan, what, Lane, what did you like? What did you like about what he was doing? Because it did feel something like a little different from what we normally see from him these days. It's so fucking sinister, mm. and I loved it. Everything that he says sounds like a threat, despite it being like this cartoonishly. <laughs> you know, Nathan Laney kind of, you know, vocal performance. But <laughs> I I loved I loved the character and I loved the decision to to cast Nathan Lane in that role. Because to me, I read the character as kind of like a a bizarro world reflection of Bo in a way that he is uh he's effeminate and he doesn't care. Mm. He's in control of his life. Um, you know, he he's important and respected. Um, and he's he's more than just, you know, the father that Bo never had. He's the man that Bo doesn't think he can be. Mm-hmm. And to cast Nathan Lane, 
a man who is a phenomenal actor and who for a long time i think uh struggled with his own sexuality uh nathan lane is a gay man but he is he was not out for a very long time despite being uh, you know on broadway and in hollywood for many years i don't think he came out until like 2000 shortly after uh, the killing of matthew shepherd unfortunately Mm. um and so i thought that was such a brilliant choice of an actor to play that role because i have to imagine there's kind of something even if the character is sort of a a fragment in a, in a, in in a non reality in Bo's world, there has to be something really kind of liberating about playing a character who, though he's not portrayed as uh, LGBT, right, does kind of give off a, an effeminate quality that's not portrayed as a negative thing, but rather a positive thing to be. That, that Bo kind of, it, in a way, admires. Um, and I thought he did, I just thought he did an excellent job inhabiting that role. I mean, he's not in it. He, I mean, I guess he's in it for a pretty sig- yeah. significant amount of time, but maybe not compared to the the full runtime of the film. <laughs> um, th- and I thought the amount of time that he was in it, he was he was excellent. Two things. I, uh, I, 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 I like the point you made, because at the same time, like, like he, he does carry himself with like a, a lot of confidence through that part of the movie nathan lane does even as like you said he's not they're not hiding the fact that he might have a more effeminate demeanor and like i think that's something that like bo could only ever really aspire to like be that confident and just like just being like a a man with a family in in uh, to begin with let alone one that can just like confidently be that while you know maybe like still you know just uh being the way being the way that nathan lane presents himself too i knew i mean i did not i did not know he came out later in life and I think it's crazy that he like it's funny that he like came out three years after the birdcage came out when he's just like playing like the <laughs> a very clearly gay person there, but he didn't actually come out for three years. So I mean, you know, everyone's right there's, to do that when, when when they want to do it. It's just kind of the timing's funny, you know. There, there's notoriously a um, a famous clip from I think it's Oprah hmm. um, after the, or or leading up to the release of the birdcage. Hmm. Um, it's. It, uh, Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, the other star of the Birdcage, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, Nathan Lane was not publicly out at that point, but I think people that knew him personally, sure. you know, knew. Um, and in the interview at this time, nineteen ninety six, few years before he comes out, Oprah says something about like being a gay man in Hollywood, and you could see Nathan Lane just like goes fucking white as a sheet and. God bless him. Robin Williams like dives in and just completely diverts the conversation. Hmm. And it, it's like one of the coolest things. I don't know why I wanted to bring that up, but it's just, um, yeah. yeah. It makes sense. Uh, Andrea, any, anything else about that corner of the movie you wanted to touch on that we didn't already get to? Um, nothing particularly about the movie. I think that uh, Elijah, I like your, um, your note about how Nathan Lane uh, is, positive yet sinister i think that could speak to the to the themes of the the movie and of Bo's relationship with his mother that not everything that is positive is necessarily good because yes he was overwhelmingly positive and joyful and everything in his voice exuded um you know comfort um but it wasn't it was a trap and uh i think that's uh very meaningful in this film so i think that 
uh, you nailed you nailed it with that. And yeah, love Nathan Lane. So. All right, guys, we got to keep moving because like we're already almost an hour in, and I feel like it's a can, three hour movie. I, I, yeah, I know. I feel like you could, though, like you could end up like talking for more than three hours about like the next two acts of this movie. Um, I'm, I'm he he has to escape when things go south uh, with the daughter, and uh, uh, Bo ends up in, with with hanging out with this traveling forest of uh, theater troupe that hangs out in the forest from place to place, and kind of gets like kind of thrown into their kind of thrown into their play kind of like then thrown into his own world and we have a a very 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 long animated sequence in this movie that takes us on its own journey of Bo seeing some other version of his life where he has a family uh you know despite the fact that like as far as he knows it's like not an option for him to actually like live to see that um I, I, I'm gonna be honest like I, I I feel I, this is like where this this is kind of like the epitome of what I was talking about with like my feelings of the movie where it's like I appreciate something like this can exist but like in like I almost feel bad like criticizing it too much because of that and I'm like so happy for Ari Aster that he got to do what he wanted to do but it's like I simultaneously am like happy for him but also like feel like it was like almost like too indulgent for me at times like it went on for so long so like elijah why am i wrong to feel that way why was ari aster not being self-indulgent and actually like giving us something of value when he went on this like long ass tangent in this long ass movie well i'm not sure that i'm going to tell you that it wasn't self-indulgent yes. but i will say <laughs> um in uh, a recent video he did um he got to ari aster got to tour the criterion closet um and one of the uh things that he picked up was the a box set of Carol Zeman's animated films, Carol Zeman being a, a Czech director from the 20th century, um, who did these kind of wild fantasy films that combined live action and animation. Hmm. Um, he was he's a contemporary of like Jan Svankmeyer. I don't know if another, I'm just gonna throw names out here <laughs> now. But um, you know, if you look over Carol Zeman's film career um you know he made adaptations of like uh jules verne uh you know he he did he did an adaptation of uh the story of you know baron munchausen um sinbad he's hmm. he was kind of known for doing these animated adventure films that were comp- totally fantastical um and the reason i bring this up is because Ari Aster himself directly stated that the character like carol zeman's work was influential for the animated sequence in bo is afraid um and i think that's kind of the point is because i i don't i we've said you know already not sure if there is a degree of uh self-mirroring in this movie for ari aster or if uh you know or if it's completely you know uh completely kind of a, a separate thing but I don't know, to me, I felt that it was kind of clear that there, even if it's not true to his full lived experience, there is a bit of him in this movie. And whether that's the, in my opinion, somewhat blatant homage to Midsommar in the last scene of the film, um, or, you know, something like this animated sequence, I thought that that was um, kind of this really interesting metatextual moment where we're, we're sort of seeing Ariaster playing out a bit of string on his own story within the context of the movie. And it's this, you know, wildly meta thing where the movie 
breaks down into a completely different format. The line between audience, as Andrea noted, the line between audience and character is, you know, kind of made blurred, if not completely shattered. And I think what we're seeing is, in a way, Ari Aster sort of saying, like, to himself, right? Like, this could have been a, a life for you. This sort of, you know fantastical Spielberg-esque you are you know you have this uh you know amazing journey just like all of the characters in any Carol Zeman animated film um and at the end and what ends up happening is it gets you know at the end it gets very immediately and very violently brought back down to earth <laughs> um <laughs> and and so yeah I mean I think it draws out and maybe there is a degree of self-indulgence to that but I think there is is a boldness to it as well to kind of not really necessarily care how much the audience is going to immediately connect with what you're showing them and more just to kind of give them something experiential I'll say, I'll and... say, I'll say there was like maybe like three or four degrees of self-indulgence I'm going to say there was more than one <laughs> uh, Andrew, Andrew, do you have all of these criterion touch points that Elijah has? Because I don't. And if you didn't, and, 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 and if you didn't have all these reference points, what did you love about this part of the movie? Because again, I know you love this movie. So if like if you had a problem with this movie, if you had a problem with this digression that he goes on, I'm guessing you wouldn't love it as much as you do. So I'm wondering if you really liked it for different reasons. Well, um. I no, I don't have, <laughs> cannot list Criterion Collection like Elijah can, but I just went on a tangent about attachment theory, so I'll give sure. him that. Um, I think this section of the movie in the forest was the part that I understood the least and enjoyed the most. Really? I thought it was visually stunning. Um, I won't even disagree. I, it was just so fucking long. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved every bit of it. The only thing that I can think of that it does to propel the movie forward like in service of the movie is to like elijah said break down the barrier between the audience and the film um i think it did that incredibly well by building so many layers of being meta and i really want to watch the film a second time i think maybe i'll, I'll understand and i'll take more from the symbolism of it all because it was like it's just so meta what's going on with these characters, whereas every other section is somewhat grounded in Bo's reality. It's like, now we've got one more separation. Well, this is Bo's kind of fantasy now. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's it's a fantasy within a surreal reality. It's, it's a little too far removed to take any sort of like, I don't know, plot driven, story from so I think you just have to take it for the kind of metaphor that it is and I don't know exactly what it's trying to say but I know it was visually stunning and I know that I was like emotionally touched when he's sitting there hugging his three sons and tears are streaming down his face I thought that was the scene that was most powerful for Joaquin's performance I was so 
touched by that moment. So yeah, like I said, I don't particularly care that I didn't understand it. And I can't go on a thesis about this part. Nor was I expecting you to. I I, I just, yeah, I just figured there had to be some reason why you loved it. And I I wouldn't expect anyone to go on to a thesis with me because it just felt like something that was like, very long and indulgent didn't make much sense. So Elijah did his best. I I have a theory. The only other other thing I want to say about this section is it really reminded me of the book 100 Years of Solitude. Have you guys read it? my favorite book of all time really oh, wow. i love yeah. that book i love that big, book so much did it, did it make you think of it when um at the end because to me it mirrored the end of 100 days of solid 100 years of solitude so much when it's like i don't want to spoil the book because we're not doing a <laughs> podcast on the book but it, it made me think of the end of that book when it wrapped up that section yeah i mean yeah i don't know do we care about spoilers for a 65 year old book but <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly i would like to think i would read it but you know it's just not i'm having enough trouble keeping up with the movie so it's not going to happen so say whatever you want well no i i totally agree and i think in a way right we've we've kind of established right that this is his his sort of fantasy of a normal life and no, yeah that that did kind of resonate with me in so much as like all right this is a very you know, this is a very vivid way to show kind of what he wishes he had when, you know, it's very clear, like, he has a lot of issues keeping him from att- obtaining that. It was just so long. Sure. I mean, but I think that's, in a way, it's almost a point, right? It's like a moment of clarity for him is, yeah. is, is, huh? as as non-clear as it is. <laughs> um, it's the it's the longest he gets, oops, f- you know, far away from the from his reality. Mm as surreal and as haunting as his reality is this moment in the forest is truly as far away from that as he gets Mm. and so in that moment he finally has time to kind of process what's going on and the way that that we see that is what we see it's him processing right like like where he's gone and how far removed he is from everything and how his only desire is for um a story where he is the hero and not you know at best a casual observer at worst victim a villain or a victim of his own you know kind of uh this 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 mental prison that he's been trapped in so i thought that was you know building kind of on what i was saying about like the you know, these kind of Carol Zeman animated films about great adventures and great heroes, right? His fantasy of being in control of his life. And even though his fantasy involves him getting washed away on, you know, in a great storm, uh, and there's obviously we could talk about there's a whole kind of, I think there's a whole separate angle of like a biblical element of, you know, sort of Noah, and you can talk about, you know, flood narratives and whatever. But like you said, we don't want this podcast to be three hours. I think the point <laughs> is he is envisioning a fantasy in which it it seems so ben, like banal to us, but a fantasy where he is a hero and where he is loved and respected. And that's really all that I you know felt like I needed to take away from it. As much as it dragged on, we're seeing all of these like him savoring every detail of his imagined life where he gets to be the hero and then Jeeves shows up and kills everyone. What did you make? Well, what do you, what, so what did you make of, yeah, I was, that was, what I was going to ask. Then. So what did you, what do you actually make of Jeeves even making it to that part of the movie? 
<laughs> well, right. I think at this point, it's starting to become clear in the film that nothing that we're seeing is in any way, quote unquote, real anymore. Hmm. It's not like the beginning of the film where you can still kind of pick a pick and pick apart. Like there might be something real, quote unquote, going on here. Everything you're seeing at this point is. Uh, a, 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 I hate to use the word delusion, but I think it kind of is the quickest shorthand right and maybe Everything i guess i is... kind of hear that with respect to jeeves but like i like i i don't I kind of mentioned that earlier how i was like i probably was like going about watching it the wrong way and whatnot but it i also stopped trying to I, at a certain point i did stop trying to think about it that way because like you know it, it, it becomes clear at a certain point like this isn't going to be the kind of movie where he just like wakes up in a hospital bed having been being treated for being off his meds so it's like well, I'll I'll tee this up for Andrea. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Away. To me, if we're in, in the context of knowing how the rest of the film goes, Jeeves, I think, can be viewed to partially as part of Bo's own psyche, as well as sort of a manifestation of his mother. It's the it's not literally his mother, but it is his mental projection of like this deathly need to be near her it's pushing him towards it uh whether or not he even realizes it because most of the i think we've established that if there is a plot to this film it's that his quote in you know the way that we are we see it at first is his mother dies and he has to go and take part in her funeral and there's all of these things guilting him and pushing him towards it and i think jeeves in a way is kind of like is a representation of that the it's the this unstoppable force pushing him closer to his to his mother is that track for you andrew uh absolutely it can i i didn't actually interpret it that way but i didn't i didn't really have a deeper interpretation for um for that character so um i i think what everything elijah said made sense i think that tracks I like I said I I I actually do like I I actually do like you putting it that way Elijah I just I didn't necessarily I guess in that moment I didn't I I'd stopped trying to figure out exactly what was real or fake even if like I I stopped trying to actively watch the movie that way even if I was still like kind of just like all right probably some of this happened maybe some of it didn't though I don't really know what it means I'm I'm just kind of here for it but if nothing else like you said it it kind of makes sense that he's there manifesting just some part of Bo that just can't that 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 can't that that can't move forward and at, at the same time like it, it it does force the plot forward too and uh and and we 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 make we let's just, let's just jump to like when he actually kind of makes it to the funeral or makes it to the funeral kind of late uh he ends up kind of like Oh God! What was the joke I saw on what Elijah? What was the joke that was on that van? It was it, it was it wasn't about Briss uh, Briss or was it um no 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 it was oh, the oh Shiva, Shiva something what, what Shiva yeah. Shiva something it was like a, a, a God I, I laughed out loud when I saw it now I'm for, now I'm forgetting what the joke was it was like some kind of wordplay on the on Shiva on that van um so he 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 walk he he walks past that and I and uh and and, and then he's in the house it's 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 pretty empty he's. He's basically he's 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 missed his mother's funeral and um and and and, and just kind of and, and just, and just kind of wonders and uh is and it, it, we're we're left to like watch we're left to watch this like 
just the, this is this this is state that he's in there and this this very fancy house that his his mom is his, his mom relatively we've lived in again i'm i'm not who knows maybe maybe the i mean i don't think the movie's like you know exaggerating anything about just how successful his mom is but like I, at this point i'm like i don't really know exactly what to believe but at least this version of whatever world he's in he has a very successful mom that like has a really it's a really nice house and all that and he's he's kind of failed whatever uh whatever uh whatever wishes his mom had for him earlier in the movie when she like wants him to Wants him to get there, uh, and we haven't even really talked about how the movie is edited, kind of interestingly, to uh, give all these give all these flashbacks to when he was younger. And uh, the young, the younger version of uh, Mona is played by Zoe Lister Jones, and, and and we see a lot of flashbacks to uh, young Bo interacting with her. Uh, they're on a cruise ship where he strikes up a little bit of a relationship with a with a girl named Elaine, and they, but they are kind of ripped apart towards the end of that cruise. And uh, but and he he kind of sees like a you see some version of Elaine on the news coverage about his mom, but then very early in the movie. And then two hours later, all of a sudden that version of Elaine pops up again. And it's, it, 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 and she, she is played by Parker Posey and uh, who had, who, who I mean, at least in whatever, whatever, uh, whatever version of Bo's world we are living in at that point, uh, she had some business relationship with his mom. So she had reason to show up there. But then, but, but then they reconnect, and I mean, we we honestly haven't even really talked that much. God, and it's we're an hour in about uh about Bo's Arrested Development, about like his. We talked. I mean, we've talked in passing about whole the whole how he has the understanding. It's his understanding through talking to his mom. If he if he comes, he dies. Uh, but like like we, we I think there are multiple points even in the movie before that where we are just like you know. We are told things about his. We are told things about his testicles. Uh, we are just we we are learning just how like messed up he is sexually through what his mom did to him through like not literally not climaxing his entire life but then we're like thrown right back into that part of the movie with respect to the parker posey character but i don't even necessarily need to jump ahead to that scene yet as uh memorable as it is because i guess i i guess i'm curious andrea like because it's something that they do weave in throughout the movie with respect to uh like just just how messed up his mom has made him with with this stuff Mm -hmm. and um i'm curious like i guess overall how you thought the movie kind of like handled that in like, honestly, like I think really doing a pretty good job of like kind of dropping the breadcrumbs for like this stuff, like throughout. I mean, not that it was like being that subtle about it necessarily, but like I, I had heard some of that stuff. I think Elijah and I both had at least followed the stuff on Twitter. where like, we're seeing stuff about how, Oh, it's about a guy who's afraid to come. And like, that sounded so funny to me that I wasn't sure if it was like a, like a, <laughs> someone making like a critic that got to see the movie wanting to like tease it in a funny way and like m- making some kind of like, <laughs> Like metaphor, we just put throwing a metaphor out there for something else or a euphemism. Like I, I didn't actually literally me- realize it was going to be about that till like I like talked to one person who did see it. Kind of like I talked to my one my one critic friend Joey who does the podcast on sometimes, and he's like, "No, that's literally actually what happens." And I was like, "Oh." So I, I really didn't know what to make of it, but like I think the movie does a fairly good job of like setting it up and referencing that and like just showing you the messed up relationship with his mom, such that like it makes sense that the movie goes to where it goes at the end. Like as someone that like, I mean, not that you like actually specialize for work and like this kind of like messed up psychological, psychosexual trauma, but like, what did you think about like how the movie like ultimately kind of like, you know, uh, laid the groundwork for like exactly like how messed up Bo was such that you were able to, it was able to have that payoff at the end with, with, with the Parker Posey scene. I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think the way they handled his relationship with his mother is brilliant and it's mm-hmm. a lot closer to reality than 
those of us who've had healthy relationships with our parents <laughs> would like to acknowledge happens in the real world. Because <laughs> okay. as funny as the idea of, you know, this woman has convinced her son that he can't ever come, like as funny <laughs> as that might sound, mm. it's so sinister. Mm. And it's, it's okay, let's talk about gaslighting for just a little bit. Sure. So gaslighting, for anybody who doesn't know, is a form of emotional and psychological abuse in which the abuser convinces their victim. So typically either, you know, a parent-child relationship in this case or a significant other relationship, mm -hmm. one partner will convince the other. They, they use emotional manipulation to make the other person question their own sanity or question their own reality. It is a very deliberate. I think this term has gotten watered down a lot. As it, gets it, thrown, it, gets, it, it does get thrown, it does get thrown around a lot. It and, does. And, yeah. And especially like sometimes I'll, I'll have, you know, clients not understand what it means and say like, oh, we, we had an argument and she said this, she was gaslighting me. It's like disagreeing on something that what the way in which something happened is not gaslighting. Gaslighting is an intentional repeated pattern of behavior with the intention to make someone question their own sanity. It's a very, very insidious form of emotional abuse. And I believe that is what Bo's mother has done to him his entire life. And one prime example of that is the conversation we see between her and young Bo when they're like, they have the nightlight spinning in the room. It gives a very cool, very pretty effect. Um, and she tells him this very serious story of how his father died when he climaxed to conceive him and, you know, his father before him and his father before him had done that. And she makes him believe that he cannot have an orgasm. Uh, otherwise he will die. And she instills this fear in her child. Kids will believe anything. They really will. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not as old as the the teenager portrayed in, in this film, but like, you know, let's give that a little bit of leeway. Like, let's imagine she was having this conversation with him a little bit younger age. Um, so, I mean, it, she's, she's essentially depriving her son of part of the human experience in the large majority of the population sexuality is a part of the human experience and she is depriving him of that for her own gain in some way i don't quite know what her motive is i i, I think you're supposed to assume that she just doesn't want her son having a love interest or having a sex life um or or or, or just like you know is a lonely person herself and like selfishly right. wants well, selfishly we, wants that companionship is, is this maybe a fair time to talk about you know narcissistic personality disorder in in parents sure because i think sure. this I, is probably I, well, a you know well this yeah is a, a manifestation that. of that right it's a, a degree of control where yeah. she mm -hmm. can't she can't survive without his attention she you know without um you know the a a, a child you know a child to essentially idolize her to to think of her as the only woman that he should have in his life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um i don't know i don't have my dsm with me to like bust it out and look at the criteria <laughs> for narcissistic personality <laughs> disorder but um i try to avoid like pathologizing people um i try to look more at their pattern of behavior and and talk about that before i jump to like a diagnosis um but she absolutely has traits of of narcissism for sure um but but her behavior to me is completely indicative of gaslighting it's a repetitive pattern made to made to make Bo 
question his own reality and and the surreal world that he lives in that we get to see and live in for three hours is the result of that and i think it's another thing that she does that is consistent with real world abuse is she sets up her son for failure she does these um you know essentially gives him impossible challenges to pass and then uses that as validation for why she hates her son and why he deserves the treatment that she is giving him so for example i'm i think my theory i think she had someone steal his keys which is the inciting incident in all of this like she has him under constant surveillance she's got cameras everywhere and she doesn't and she supposedly claims like oh it's it's bullshit that your keys got stolen she definitely has cameras on his door And she, you know, she had the Nathan Lane worked for her, too. Like, if you see the um, when Bo is looking in her um, her room, she's got that poster of all of her employees pictures that make her face. Uh, If you look real closely, Nathan Lane is in there. I miss that. So he was, you know, a plant who worked for her and he's supposed to drive Bo back home. But then, oh, an emergency surgery comes up and I Bo, I absolutely cannot drive you home today. But it's your choice. It's your choice to not go home today. So I think that she sets up these impossible standards of, well, you don't have your keys, but it's still up to you to make it to me. And you don't have a ride. You just got hit by a car, but it's still your fault that you're not making it to me. And that is super consistent with what she didn't even want him to come in the first place. Well, I don't know. No, I think she did, but she wanted she wanted him to pass her impossible tasks. And mm. she she rigged the system to, but she but she also didn't his, want him to come in the first place. You know, it's a win win situation for her. It right? is a win win situation. Yeah, either he fulfills her desire to be idolized and to be treated as the only important thing in his life, or he fails, and she gets the the sense that the you know the sense of indignation righteous indignation mm-hmm. that she was right the whole time i'm not good but at jokes and my cum joke just went like did it go over your head or did you know i heard she didn't want him to come in the first place uh... <laughs> i don't think i honestly don't think that's unintentional i think that's all kind of part of the dialogue yeah. the lexicon of the film but i mean i like you know we've kind of keyed in already to that it's think some things are unclear you know in their level of reality and that's the point right like uh, andrew you mentioned that nathan lane's character roger is in the company portrait um mm. at the uh, you know towards the end of the film but as we've established when a character is being gaslit and we're seeing the world in a in an internally logical perspective from that character how do we know if that's real or not? And especially True. when it's presented <laughs> as the company portrait is just a bunch of faces that ultimately make up his mother's face. <laughs> you know, I think the the symbolism is there definitively to to trick you. And it's not just Nathan Lane, by the way. There's uh the the tattooed homeless okay. guy from the beginning is also there. And I think, yeah, there's certainly a way to read it that is to a degree literal and and kind of has this like pinchian quality of like the world is controlled by this unknowable system and i mean like i don't want to get too into like mm-hmm. you know jj abrams conspiracy land here but like you know the you know the company his mother's company mw 
we see its label everywhere from the food that he eats at the beginning to the shop that he goes to to you know it's a it's it's listed as a production company before the film yeah which is great because it doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> um so i think there is a degree of like i said like a pension sort of gravity's rainbow sort of idea of like these super structures controlling this man's world and how how do we know what's real or not but i think that's the point right is we're, we're just supposed to live in this uncertainty because mm-hmm. that's bo's world is you know one of uncertainty where everything is threatening and nothing is guaranteed so uh is is it these superstructures that are responsible for him uh finally having sex or or is that not real or does bodas have that much game that you know he can just convince parker posey to go for it in uh 120 seconds but that's that's the not clear thing right is like (laughs) she apparently works for his mother Mm. but then when he's talking to her she's like confused why he's even asking that Mm. because it seems so irrelevant to her apparently and when he mentions to his mother that she was you know that elaine was working for her this whole time his mother acts also like i like really okay well she's fired (laughs) (laughs) which Mm. again there's no way to know it's like is she lying is she covering up this you know this plot or did she legitimately not know that Elaine was working for her all these years? Well, and it will also if it is if 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 we're to, if we're supposed to like take take a um uh look at this through a lens of like possibly that at least that Jackson of it being more real than not, I would suspect she doesn't know she she actually doesn't know that uh, Elaine is going to die, uh, die if Elaine climaxes as opposed to uh, what she's been telling Poe all along. So, uh, so that that tends to that that me thinks that like maybe that is like you know just uh. That's almost too convenient for it to actually be real, but like you know, who knows? I, I don't. I almost think the whole point of that, besides this being an incredibly entertaining scene, is uh, you know, is to get to where we are on the other side of the scene where they actually, you know, uh, where they have sex, where we like actually find out that like, hey, mom isn't dead. Uh, what 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 was your reaction to anything in that sequence, Andrea? Were you like, were you just kind of blown away by the Mariah Carey of it all? Were you actually shocked that uh, were you actually shocked that Mona was alive? Uh, were you like, you know, just happy for Bo that you know he got to like consummate things with his long lost love? Like, what was your reaction to that incredibly bonkers sequence? I I thought it was the funniest sex scene I've ever seen. I thought it was great. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was awesome. I think her dying when she climaxes is hilarious. I I when now that we're like breaking everything down and questioning mm-hmm. everything, I'm starting to re-question like I think I took a a slightly more literal approach to it sure. than than maybe you two did and and Dan and Gage and now I'm wondering like you know, was she even there? What are the I don't think I, I, that's, I don't think there's like, any right or wrong. I don't think there's any right or wrong answers to it. You know? Yeah. Or could she? Could she just be a, a fantasy to him? You know, and he he he's just jerking off instead of of having sex. And then as or, soon as or is it incredibly or, the, or is it incredibly literal? Done. Or is it incredibly literal in that it's maybe just dangerous to have uh to 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 have sex with a forty nine year old who is like never ejaculated before? Maybe that just <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just maybe that's just dangerous. You know? Last right through that bag. Uh, yeah. I'm not a I'm not a biology. <laughs> Uh, person but i don't think that's true <laughs> that was so funny when they you know when it dawns on you oh that's why his testicles are distended because he's never come in his life that was so funny to me i just thoroughly enjoyed that scene i wasn't shocked that the mom wasn't 
dead. I was just, I was all, it was like an action movie to me at that point. I was like on the edge of my seat. I was just having a great time. Mm. Um, and I mean, the, the scenes that, that come after the confrontation with his mother, that, that was, uh, more like psychologically fascinating, but the, the actual reveal that she was dead, that she was not dead was not shocking to me. I was wondering if they were, um, like trying to make some kind of comment on classism with um, killing the housekeeper instead of instead of rough. her. Um, yeah, I felt like there were maybe um, like undertones about classism throughout the film with the you know decrepit apartment. Meanwhile, you come from wealth. Like, what does that mean? I don't know if I have any super eloquent thoughts on it, but that that was. I was like, there's probably something about classism here. Well, yeah, I mean, well, for sure with what what they, what they do, the housekeeper. Uh, I'll I'll just say as far as the sex scene, like I had that spoiled for me beforehand. Uh, so I, I don't. I, I think someone might have just straight up, like someone I follow on Twitter, that like a critic might have just straight up put it in a tweet. But like it was almost like it almost sounded too crazy for me to actually know if that was actually a, a spoiler or not. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure it was IndieWire straight up put it because it was a picture of Ari Aster uh, and yeah, Mariah I Carey. I, I, I might have said that like, one to you too. I'm sorry if I spoiled it for you. Ari Aster posing with Mariah Carey, whose um, song such and such scores a scene of Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix and Parker Posey having sex. I was like, huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like so weird if you just see it out of context like that, that it's not really spoiling it for you because it's just so bonkers and, and fun. So I, and again, like I think you can be on any number of wavelengths with the movie up until that point and still get a lot out of it. But yeah, we, 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 I, I do think it's more important to kind of like jump ahead to like both the conversation and the mom, and we may as well bring in the penis monster now, uh, because I know, and I, I know Andrea had a theory there. And I think that, I think that really does tie in because like you're seeing all the conversations with your mom, you're seeing the flashbacks of her, like, sending it up to the attic. And I mean, I think a lot of the thesis of the movie just kind of like spills out there with respect to like, you know, like how you blame your parents for like the ways in which you get messed up. And like a, a lot of stuff is coming to the surface for Bo like in that moment, but also like a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the resentments from Mona, regardless of whether or not she is real in that moment. Like it, it really is like a, it's a boiling point in, in, in a lot of ways, like everything in the movie like has, has led to that. And like, I, I, I guess I kind of like expected something like that at some point. Cause like I knew Patty Gopone was in the movie and I, 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 I just knew that, but like, I, I, but I also is like, all right, I feel like she, I've heard that she's in this movie big enough that it's going to be something substantial beyond her just like talking on the phone. But at the same time, like, I, I still think I was a little almost taken aback by just like how, how powerful that argument was. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering Elijah, like what really, what, what struck you about that in, in, were you were you thinking at all about Ari Aster in that moment? A lot of people have talked about, oh, you know, he's funneling a lot of messed up stuff here. But like at a certain point, like when it's just like a very stagey moment like that with like these two characters talking, it's like, oh, this seems like it's like really honing in on something like much more specific because he's like he's almost getting away from the abstract for at least a minute there. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the re like the realest mm -hmm. moment. In, yeah, I would think probably in the whole film, mm -hmm. even if there is an element of it that maybe isn't real right mm -hmm. we don't really right, know right. if this is happening but the the at least the text of the scene uh feels very real i mm -hmm. mean yeah straight up it feels like a conversation i may have had before um sorry i didn't and, mean no i didn't mean to do a personal attack on you there no i mean we've talked about it at length about my <laughs> my personal stuff i talked about after sun with you right so uh, i'm lost 
you know, <laughs> giant, giant penis monster. Uh, we'll get to that. But I think that, again, if you take it as a degree of reality, even if she's not really there or if she never died, you know, all that aside, he's having a very lucid conversation with his mother. And even if it's in his head, it's, it's again, it's very lucid. It's like, it, it it's everything. It's a moment of clarity, another moment of clarity in a way where, where he's kind of breaking through the programming. He's, it's validating his feelings of being gaslighted right it's 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 a honest look at behind the curtain and him sort of seeing his mother for who and what she is mm-hmm. and you know there it maybe feel <laughs> feels like apart from the opening phone conversation between the two of them like maybe like the most jewish moment in the whole film yeah, we um, haven't really talked about that much yet. Like we, but, we 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 talked about the potential for it to be a Jewish movie based on what we heard before it ever came out. And like, yeah, like there's enough there that we know that these people are Jewish, though like Judaism itself is not mentioned that much throughout the movie. So like what really so struck you about that? Yeah, I I'm gonna lay in down my theory about it yeah. and including that scene. I think in my personal assessment of the movie, mm-hmm. I think his mother did actually die. I don't mm. know if it was because she had a chandelier dropped in her head or if it was something else. But I think the film, the reality of the film is that his mother did die. I don't think she came back from the dead at the end. I think what we're seeing is him getting there, getting to the house late after the funeral, you know, and all of this guilt pouring in on top of him. And he is like, he has this extended mental breakdown basically Mm. where his mother's dead now and now he can actually contend with what she did to him and he he doesn't have a therapist he can trust he doesn't because (laughs) but in a way the evidence is so clear at that point that he doesn't need one (laughs) it's him and, and i mean again maybe the therapist is there maybe the therapist isn't maybe you know it's it's him processing his reality and it's still surreal and stilted he's still having a conversation with a dead person but it's him uh, you know addressing this guilt head on and i think that moment through the rest of the film is i mean i'm going to i don't want to tread on andrea's toes here with any of the psychological stuff You're but to fine. me to me it read as ego death it read as you know, from that moment to the end of the film, it's his ultimate reconciliation with his mother's gone. He has nothing. He doesn't even have a fantasy of his mother anymore because it's been shattered so thoroughly. And he has no way to exist without it. He has, he literally has nothing. He he doesn't have himself because he is that, uh, you know, he is that, ang- he has that anxious attachment issue that that disorder so he he has no self-identity that exists outside of his mother his father the closest that he's gotten is the fantasy of his father and then the reality is this giant penis-shaped monster because he his worldview has been so thoroughly shaped by his mother that even if his father was actually up there in the attic that's how he would see him 
nothing more than a conduit for his own existence. Just some delivery system that gave his mother the ability to produce a child. And so he he has, like, he really has nothing. He has no, there is no bow anymore, really, at that point. And that, through the rest of the film, right, is him contending with that, ultimately going on trial for it, you know, for what he then proceeds to to sort of realize, like, none of these things were his fault, but it's too late. And yeah, so I, I read that scene as that that is the, even though the climax <laughs> happens the scene before, I think that scene is really the climax. It's the post nut clarity. It's him realizing <laughs> uh, that everything that he knew was a lie. And yeah. Well, uh, Andrew, was your read on that showdown as dark as Elijah's? <laughs> That is a fascinating take, Elijah. No, I did not have the same take on it, but um, but on my on my second watch, I'm gonna think about that, Elijah. Um, <laughs> I had a very similar take to the penis monster, but actually, um, I didn't think of it as the way Bo sees his father. I thought of that scene as you know, we've spent the first three three quarters of the movie um, learning about the world through through Bo's eyes, and then his mother goes on this like you know exposition dump kind of. And when she locks him up in the attic and tells him that's his father, I thought it was more of how she sees his father. Like he was nothing more to her than a disembodied penis. Sorry, a, if, a, I, if I wasn't clear, I agree with that. I agree oh, with that. I thought, that's I thought his... you were saying that's how Bo sees his father. No, no, no. I think the closest we get to how Bo wants to see his father is the fantasy in the forest. Oh, I think okay. the, the penis monster is his, I, I think it is, it is Bo seeing how his mother has how forced his mother this. sees his mother. Yeah, okay. Like... Yeah. So then so then we had a we had a similar take because that's that's how I interpreted it is is now we're getting to see her kind of inner world that she has literally locked away in an attic where people are nothing but disembodied penises. Um <laughs> and uh you know I thought that said a lot about her as a person. Like she didn't care about this person who fathered her child. He's he's nothing more than a source of sperm. And I, I don't know whether the, you know, the other person in the attic is is actually Bo's brother, if it's another version of himself, uh, if if any of it's real. I definitely did not read it as his mother actually died by having a chandelier fall on her head like she was always dead i definitely thought she faked her own death to to get Bo there the part where i i question did she did she actually die is when when he chokes her and she falls into the uh fish tank um that there i question i really like your comment about ego death elijah because i i absolutely think you're right like Bo is shedding this identity that he has spelt spent his whole life cultivating um, which is based around his mother, um, and not around any sense of self. And he's, he kind of sheds that when, when he walks away from the house, just like slack jawed and he enters the boat. And as he goes through the, the cave, uh, I interpreted that as being like another birth canal. I thought the imagery was pretty, um, uh, reminiscent of the very opening of the film when he's coming through the literal birth canal. I, I I thought of this as a metaphorical birth canal, like he's shedding his his old uh, identity that is that is 
you know, orbited around his mother. And he's he's going to come out into this beautiful new world and it's the stars and nope, floodlights, you can't escape it. That's a very dark message from Ari Aster, but that's what I took from it is like, you're not going to escape the horrors your parents have done to your psyche. Um, and then, of course, we get to the trial scene. So yeah, so that, that was my interpretation of of it up to yeah. now. I never even really got the um, made that connection to the end of the film because I missed the first two minutes of the movie and came oh, in no. during the therapy scene because mm-hmm. I again uh, could not my my slowly dying theater didn't have this movie and I had to go to one where I was not familiar with the uh, with the links of the previous and I uh, made my, uh, my last uh, gambit to go to the bathroom and refill my icy and popcorn and thinking I needed to have everything filled up for a three hour movie and. <laughs> I mistimed it because, you know, AMC has, uh, you know, pretty much exactly 25 minutes of trailers and commercials and CMX, I don't know, more like 21. Uh, <laughs> and like, so I, I, I had, I, I did totally, I mean, I found out the birthing scene basically after uh, reading about it in another review. And that was how I knew. It um, was, um, it was very Gaspar Noe, I thought, like hmm. the, the internal camera, like pushing through the birth canal. It was a very cool opening scene, I thought. And I love the title sequence as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, my, my, my bad for, uh, being, uh, being, uh, just not being on top of my game with, uh, you know, uh, when, when this movie is actually going to start, but, uh, regardless, I mean, I say, I still think like, you know, you did a good job of, uh, kind of, I, I, or regardless, I appreciate your take on like how we actually got to that cave, uh, that may or may not have had that parallel earlier, but like, what do you guys make of like, you know, after we already had whatever reckoning that he did have in the showdown with some version of Mona, what do you make of then the choice to then have him go on trial even after that. Cause it feels like, I mean, the showdown with Mona should have been cathartic and, and possibly final in its own way, but like this movie just keeps going. And uh, <laughs> we get Richard kind as the arbiter of all, of all things in Bo's life. Uh, wh- 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 <laughs> I, I guess I knew Richard kind was going to be in the movie, but what did you think of seeing Richard kind? Well, first of all, Elijah, what do you think of seeing Richard kind in this particular mode? Cause it didn't act. It, it was kind of cool that I thought Ari Aster like is having him do something different than what you would normally see him doing. And uh, two, like, what did you think of the idea of ending the movie in this way? I mean, come on, obviously a uh, Jewish screen <laughs> legend, especially <laughs> neurotic Jewish screen legend. It reminded me a lot of him in the serious man where, mm. There is he plays a character who has something sinister about him and also something like almost godlike. <laughs> He's just sort of he has like this magical quality. Um and in in the end of this film, his magical quality is basically being the devil's advocate, maybe <laughs> you could say. <laughs> um but uh I mean he he's great. I'm always happy to see him. I heard when you when I heard his voice on the phone the first time, I was like the fuck is that i know who it is and i couldn't tell and then they like he's like he appears in a video but it's at like the corner of a scene and you can't really see who it is so i finally got to see him i was really happy but you should um, also note there there, there's a a a even more ambiguous bill Hader cameo probably right we see the back of bill Hader's head (laughs) um no i mean that final scene right we i kind of already touched on this and we and and andrea also brought up the you know the, the image of the f- reflection of a theater mm. and i i would agree that that's to me that's kind of how i read the ending ultimately mm. is i think you can view it in the context of bo's story and the film and whether or not you want to say that's literal death ego death whatever it is that he is he he will always carry these things with him 
whether it's to his literal grave or even through a rebirth into himself as a new person um he can't escape kind of the what the what's been programmed into him but i thought that was a sort of moment where again i noticed the midsummer uh visual <laughs> reference there's a shot of somebody getting thrown off of a cliff onto a, a you know conspicuously placed rock uh, <laughs> that they you know get you know get crushed on and and throughout the film i want to point out there were also other ariaster in my opinion ariaster kind of self-references right ariaster has got a thing for decapitation apparently <laughs> you know in hereditary the mother decapitates herself the daughter gets decapitated by a light post in this movie the mother gets decapitated by a chandelier um i felt that that was a pretty solid visual you know reference point sure there is uh you know there's there's that thing with with the midsummer cliff you could oh, say yeah, yeah, yeah. there's even things like you know even innocuous things you could argue like the like the dark thing being kept in the attic which is not specific to ariaster but it is something that appeared very significantly in hereditary i i think the ending is sort of the synthesis of both the film's messages and also Ariaster's sort of whatever he's working through in this film, right? Is he's putting himself on trial in a way. And yeah, maybe there is some a, a, a rather dark element to that. Uh, in a way, it seems that he views it as the there is no escape from your past. And I... I I don't know if that's necessarily. It's I funny. think you can argue in some way as 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 fucked up as the endings of his first two movies are. There's like almost a way you can argue that like it's even darker, despite this one's even darker, despite it being a more light and comedic movie throughout. Yeah, the ending certainly dark. Agreed. I I would say though that there's there's a kind of wryness to the ending, maybe. Well, yeah, where he's agree. you know Bo's fate aside. I think Ariaster is sort of saying to himself and maybe anybody who's listening that it's like, this is what he's doing. His movies are him working through whatever, you know, happened in his past, whatever has happened in his life. Maybe he's not literally Bo, but I think it's sort of him implying in a way that like the media, the medium is the message, right? Like the medium is the way that he is trying to process things and whether or not you want to join the two ideas together and say that he is Bo or whatever I think the ending while upsetting is also just kind of an observation it's sort of like the lights come on and the audience leaves mm -hmm. and maybe it's Ari Aster sort of saying like maybe you should take something with you maybe not physically but um <laughs> you know try and it's sort of begging to be processed right like if he can't solve these things in his life maybe somebody else can hmm. yeah. know, maybe there's something to be gleaned from watching from observing andrew you you already kind of made some references to the end earlier when you were kind of talking about the the ways in which this movie was kind of like turning a mirror in its audience but i'm curious mm -hmm. was there anything else you also took from it in the way that elijah is saying it might have been asking you to take something from it um, I didn't ever like compare Aster to Bo in my mind, but now that you put it that way, Elijah, I do think 
maybe there's something to be said about like the vulnerability of Bo being in there in a boat. Whereas for us, it's just something we gathered to, to sit and watch, you know, slack eyed at the screen for three hours. And then we're going to get up and leave. Like this man just bared his whole soul Mm -hmm. and you know, what, what he gets is blown up in a boat. So that's, that's an interesting thought. I didn't necessarily take that from, from it on the first time around, but um, the ending I just thought was like devastating emotionally. Like I I was, I, I, I just thought it, it metaphorically meant like there is no escape from the trauma that your parents have put you through, which is not true in real life. Um, luckily, uh, but thematically, that's that's certainly what I thought it spoke to. I also thought um, maybe he's trying to say something about classism here with the, you know, um, the lawyer for his mother being so prominent and that he's got one. He cannot afford a good one. Nope. <laughs> I, was, I, I was about to say, as I was about to say, as an attorney, I was like kind of like I felt kind of bad for Bo. I thought he might have a legal malpractice case, but he's not going to survive to pursue it, you know? <laughs> well, does he does he have a is that the 1-800 lawyers fault or is he just up against a system that he can't stand up against? Like he doesn't have the same microphone that uh his mom's lawyer has, you know? Like well, I, I think, mean I think I, that's I think that's a very cogent and simple yeah. observation, right? That it is it is economically ruinous to be mentally yeah. uh, disabled. Like it's, it, uh, you know, or differently abled. I don't know what term. No, I mean, like, I mean, I don't know. Like it is, it's extremely expensive to have mental issues. Like true. Yeah, no. And I, I, I'm not sure how, not sure how much Ari Aster was thinking about specifically, you know, any, uh, the ways in which inequality like that can, you know, play itself out in the legal system. But it certainly is the case that like, you know, when I thought about it, the ending myself, I was like, well, at a certain point, there's just nothing this guy can do anymore. And, but the fact is, you know, God, rich people can buy themselves so much if they, with the right lawyer and I Mm -hmm. face so little consequences for certain things or, and like, you know, and again, I don't think we're necessarily, because, because the movie has so much else on its mind, I don't think we're necessarily meant to ponder Bo's economic situation too much beyond that first like i don't think it's really asking us to dwell too much on it beyond the beyond the first act but at at the same time like money does like you know it's, it's kind of like you know the thing where it's like the only people that say oh money m- money doesn't buy happiness really or money m- money uh money's not really the most important thing here it's, it's usually the people with a lot of money that say that kind of stuff right. and yeah sure and sure and sure like you could still be depressed and have issues if you have a lot of money but at the same time like it does buy you a lot of things and make a lot of things easier. And uh, we're so far outside the realm of anything that resembles like the real world. And it's incredibly surreal at that point in the movie when he does have the, the, that defense attorney uh, meekly advocating on his behalf. But my, my take was like, all right, like at this point, you know, yeah. When, when, when the system is stacked against you in some ways and kind of, kind of like you guys, Elijah was just saying, it's like, yeah, I mean, certain health problems like that are going to put you behind the eight ball, like in just so many ways in life. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you might be put in a position where you're not going to be able to go get the best attorney who could just solve all your problems. And, or at the very least, uh, mitigate your problems to such a great extent that you don't really feel that harsher consequences. But, you know, uh, Bose is not going to have that because he's, he's been dealt too rough of a hand in life. And yeah, that, that does hurt you on the back end. And you I, know. and I, and I, I think a lot hearing Elijah talk about it, like it helped it click in the place for me. But in the moment as I was watching, I was just like, yeah, I, I it's kind of bleak, but at the same time, like, 
I, I kind of get where he's coming from. Like it is you're it, it's, it's not as easy as, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and like making everything. Okay. Like sometimes like sh- sh- the, the, the things are not going to fall in your favor and there's not a ton you can do about it. And that, that's unfortunate if you don't have the right people in your life. You, you know, I wasn't going to let us get through a podcast without using this as an, uh, a springboard to complain about another movie. Go for it. Um, <laughs> and something that immediately came to mind when I'm watching through the ending was a movie that I really thoroughly disliked um, that came out last year, but I saw a few months ago for the first time, uh, which was Smile. Um, <laughs> That's the only Finn. other uh, podcast I've been on on here. I think, I, I, think I knew that, um, but... You're not, you're not necessarily offending us. Like Andrew like, and I, neither Andrew and I were like five stars on that, but we had a fun talk. Yeah. I, I felt like that was a, a very anti-clinical film, maybe not even intentionally. That it's like, I, I think, in fact, very unintentionally, because I don't think there was that much thought put into it. Mm-hmm. There, there was like all this buildup in that movie about like trauma and about like working through trauma. And then the ending is just like, nah, fuck you. You're going <laughs> to die anyways. It's all miserable. <laughs> Um, and it felt very unearned to me. It felt kind of like, it, you know, I, I, it sort of invalidated everything else the movie was talking yeah. about. This the movie reason... earns it, though. This exactly. movie earns I... the message of you can't escape your trauma. <laughs> exactly. I would. That's my, yeah, I would agree. Oh, that so I bleak. Think, I think Bo is Afraid at least makes a an interesting case for that assessment it's internally and, consistent like you're saying exactly. like to yeah. some degree all of this is happening in Bo's head like I wouldn't be surprised if both attorneys are just voices in his head not necessarily like auditory hallucination kind of voices but just like his internal dialogue of like you know self-defeating thoughts and then you know you have a, a an inkling of of truth in there of no you couldn't help it it's not your fault but it's just well, shouldn't it's no you match. shouldn't you be of the opinion, Andrea, that you can't escape your trauma with the right therapist if your uh, if your uh, sinister mom isn't is is isn't paying the therapist behind your back? Like I think, you know, yes, of course, in real life, yes, yes absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Don't listen to Ari Aster. <laughs> you can you can always work on your trauma. Things can always be better. And well, maybe should... that's maybe that's the point of the ending, right? Is Ari Aster saying, "I'm not a psychologist, but I am a filmmaker," mm-hmm. and you know. Take from that what you will. Elijah, I think we're already uh, in danger of this being the longest ever podcast with uh, two, uh, the longest ever two person, one movie, two guests, one movie podcast I've ever done. But I'd be remiss if we didn't go over to Craft Corner with you uh, because I feel like, <laughs> you know, I th- we, we really haven't talked about it at all. And like, as I was saying at the beginning of the movie or the beginning of the podcast, like, yeah, I'm really glad this movie exists first and foremost, even if I had more issues with it than you guys. But secondly, like, even if you don't really, even if you have problems with the, the character building or the writing or the the or the indulgence like you can't deny that it's like an incredibly well-made film and again we don't we we could probably talk about it for another hour but i want to at least like hone in on with you what what kind of impressed you most about like how he created this world on a 35 million dollar budget yeah i mean obviously all the the texture and the the breadth of all of the things that needed to be captured you know all of the set pieces uh, the animated segment, which probably alone was essentially <laughs> its own film uh, in terms of how it needed to be made. But um, I think it's just, you know, as all of Ari Aster's films have been so far relying on really solid talent around him. Um, well, one thing you said, we well, don't what's, have... what's interesting, uh, when we talked about Dungeons and Dragons a few weeks ago, you told you actually surprised me with the amount of uh, 
practical effects you said that movie had, which I mean, not you, not just you said they had, which it did have, but you informed me of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, from what I can gather, it seems like they did a pretty good job of that here too, right? Yeah, uh, obviously there's, I think a little bit maybe less that needed to be done, but yeah, mm. there there's always uh, Ari Aster has been solid and you know kind of making sure that things that can be done practically mm-hmm. are, are done that way. I don't know. For me, one I uh uh his uh Ari main collaborator that I really really love um is uh Pavel uh Pogorzelski, hmm. who's his cinematographer. Uh, they've worked together on all of, I think, on everything. He he did this. He did Midsommar and Hereditary. I also think he did uh, Munchausen and The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which are two of Ari Aster's early or short films. He's If we're just going to hone in on one thing because of time, Powell does a really interesting thing that I love that I think works so well for these movies. And, and it's something very simple, which is that he does not always use eye light. Now, in, in what that means uh, in film terms is when you're lighting a scene, which is part of the job of the cinematographer to kind of work with the director and figure out what the lighting arrangement is going to be for a scene. Something that's really ubiquitous in film that it's it's so ubiquitous, in fact, that most people probably don't know it's happening is usually on set. Uh, in addition to all the other lighting, there's usually a light given specifically for actors' eyes in shots where there are you know, actors with their face towards the camera. Hmm. Usually you want a kind of a small distant light pointing like straight at the actor's face so that you get some like shine, some like reflectiveness in the eyes. Um, And the reason that we do that is because it it adds dynamism. It makes people look more real and dynamic. Uh, Pavel does not always do that. And I think it really helps a lot of scenes just feel incredibly unsettling mm-hmm. um, in, in kind of conjunction with Ari's direction. There are numerous scenes in the movie where you have people in frame just far away enough that you can't, you know, that it's not like a close up. There's not like intimate detail and there's no highlight. They're just kind of evenly lit and everybody looks dead and it's so disconcerting, and I love it. And it ha- it happens in all of Ari Aster's films, and it happens in this one. It, it, I mean, it's in the first scene with the psychologist, uh, played very wonderfully. I'll give a shout out to Stephen McKinley Henderson. There is like this medium shot of him where it's just enough distance that he just kind of looks like a piece of furniture, and there's no highlight, and he's just like he just looks like dead, and it's so I. It's so off-putting, and they do it all the time. Um, and I think that's the kind of simple craft that allows a movie to have a you know a very mid to low range budget, and still accomplish everything that it needs to. You know, you can you can we can laud the crazy visuals all day long, but I think it's the simple stuff like that that makes this movie different from Smile, or <laughs> you know, or, or any number of other. Uh, perhaps less interesting films on a similar budget. Yeah, I don't even necessarily have too much to add to that myself because I think if if I think of anything from like a filmmaking perspective myself, I'm and what impressed me most about the movie, and I appreciate those insights, Elijah, because like you always have more to offer on this stuff than I do, and it I think that's gives people something really interesting to look for if they go back and rewatch the movie. I I I kind of my mind kind of goes to some of the stuff that Andrea was highlighting earlier in the podcast because like when I think most about the craft I'm like just, I'm still most impressed by the first act of this movie and how like just 
how how there is like so much imagination and so much detail and so much thought put into just like how that how that run across the street was shot and what what everything that was going on in that street and uh, everything that made that feel as intense and epic as it was when it's literally a dude crossing the street to drink a bottle of water. Uh, and like you highlighted earlier, Andrea, a lot of the, the different visual details that are in that part of the movie. But if you think back on this movie and kind of what made it special for you to for you to see from a visual standpoint, is there anything else that come that comes to mind for you as what might have been made this an especially effective movie for you? Or do you, do you go back to that stuff you were talking about earlier, where it's like I I just enjoyed reading the things that he dotted the background with? Yeah, I think that what I in what I think made this movie so special to me was not necessarily like the beautiful cinematography or visuals, which I do think it had, particularly in the third act. I love mm. animation mixed with live action. That's just mm. that's just a me thing, and I thought it was especially well done in this film. But um, I love when movies work on more levels than just literal. And I think in, in this case, it didn't even have to work on a literal level because it, it worked so well on a, on a thematic level. Mm. Um, and that's what made it so special. And like I said, Astor's just complete intentionality it, with every little detail of his films down to like, you know, the mother's company uh, being like one of the production companies listed mm. in the middle or it's it's on the microwave, it's on everything. Um, I just find details like that to be so good. I love the foreshadowing, like it, everything about this film just worked. It was just a home, home run for me. Elijah, final thoughts on the movie. Anything else we didn't already talk about that you wanted to touch on, that you wanted to give a shout out to, any, any part of it at all? Because I'm... I we're, we're gonna have to wrap it up soon because I might fall asleep <laughs> and not not because not I'm not having fun but because it's late and I woke up early <laughs> no yeah I mean I think we I think we've thoroughly touched on it and I think you know I, I would say just as a final note I mean I I know I mentioned you know that you can read kind of this biblical Noah flood narrative mm. idea into it yeah we didn't follow that much up on the religion and stuff, I yeah. think you can you can read a uh, you know, again, like sort of pension-esque, uh, you know, government conspiracy sort of angle into it. And I think that's the point. I think we've pretty much well established at this point that there, that we're, this movie is so in a specific lens that the, the abstract quality of any of these interpretations is is to some degree at least valid and mm. and you know kind of you is a lens through which you can view the film and i really hope uh that despite the fact that this movie you know even though it was made for a comparatively low amount of money it probably is not going to necessarily make back its budget at box office mm. um i hope that nevertheless people take the time to see this and to develop their own assessment because i think this movie is ripe for all kinds of critical lenses. And I, I think this is one of those movies that absolutely deserves it. So well said, Andrea, any final thoughts on Bo is afraid you want to share before we wrap up? Man, I just, I think I, uh, I think I, I shared my, my thoughts in, in what made it so special to me. It's just, mm -hmm. it just works on every level. I'm, I'm such a fan. I'm so happy this movie exists and I can't wait to go see it again. Mm -hmm. I, even though it was a three hour film when the credits rolled, it's one of those films that I wanted to see it again immediately because I know it's going to be different on the second watch. And if 
when I was sitting in the theater, if it had just started playing again, I would have sat there for three more hours and just watched it again. So that's how special this movie is, I think. There we go. Uh, yeah, I don't have much to add. Like I said, like I think there's always a barrier to entry to me for a movie where like I'm not going to connect with the characters themselves as much as maybe this movie cares to have you try and do because of just the, the everything about the way it's done. But... I still want people to see it. You know, I think it's really cool. A movie like this got made. And while it sucks that like, we're already fairly com at least Elijah. And I mean, I kind of had the same thought, like it's, it's going to take a lot for this movie to make $35 million and or anything more than that. But like, I think it's cool that someone would pay a guy to make something this weird and that should be celebrated. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I can see why certain people might walk out though. I don't know why you sit through it for two and a half hours before doing that. But at, at the same time, like, I think there, anyone can at least at the very least come out of this movie being like, I respect that that dude went for it. And I think there's value in supporting movies like that. So I hope there's some kind of word of math mouth just because how weird it is. And that makes it a success. Elijah, before we wrap up, anything else you've watched recently, you want to direct the listeners to? whether it be anything that shares lineage with this, as I know uh, people have thrown out a lot of comparisons to this movie, that if there's anything like that that you like or just something totally, totally random you've been consuming lately. Yeah, um, I've actually seen a few weird comparisons for this movie. Um, mm -hmm. One that uh, I'll, I'll bring up, or it's really two films, one director, and uh, building off what you just said, uh, hearkening back to a time when uh the cinema of the world was unafraid to just give crazy people lots of money to make whatever the hell they wanted the the filmmaker who's whose work i want to bring up here is louis buñuel i think most people probably know him from his short film uh Nchien andalu the andalusian dog uh a short that he did with salvador dali which mm. famously has all kinds of crazy imagery, surrealist imagery, people's eyes being sliced open, ants coming out of places, men dressed <laughs> as women. Um, and that's a lot of what Buñuel did, to be fair. Um, but specifically, I want to recommend his last two movies, which came out in the late 70s, um, The Phantom of Liberty and That Obscure Object of Desire both of which I feel like speak very directly to Bo is Afraid. I mean, uh, that obscure object of desire is a dark comedy about a man who really needs to come, who is chasing <laughs> after chasing after a woman over the course of like several years. Um, it's, of course, got its surreal elements. The woman is played uh, interchangeably by two actresses throughout the film. And there's a ton of, you know, reading into that you can do about why she changes actresses throughout the film. There's even, uh, I would say, a similar element of that the film uh, has a kind of indistinct, like, terrorist insurgency occurring in the background, hmm. um, which reminded me a lot of in uh, Bo, obviously, where the way that Bo views the world is kind of this violent, uh, uh, unruly world outside his window. Sure. Um, and Fan Phantom of Desire is a lot less straightforward. It's just kind of a bunch of weird vignettes tied together. Um, but they all deal very distinctly with kind of the the intersection of sex and um, and psychology and uh, and and capitalism, which ultimately is, I think, a, again part of sort of the DNA of Bo is Afraid. 
So yeah, I would recommend Phantom of Liberty and that obscure object of desire. I think uh, Phantom of Liberty is available on the Criterion channel. Both of them were recently just remastered and released by Criterion in a box mm. set with another film uh, by Louis Buñuel. So very interesting and fitting recommendation. Andrea, as you know, this is the point of the podcast where we normally, like you said, I ask people for recommendations, but it doesn't have to be as on point for something as like, you know, dark and messed up like Elijah just did. Like I prompted him to. Do you have anything at all you've been watching recently that you'd like to direct to listeners to? Um, not necessarily watching, but I'll do my same mental health plugs. Um, oh, okay. So <laughs> or it could be reading too, but like if you, but I'm happy to have you plug any resources you want. Cause you know, we don't want more bows out there. Yeah. So if, if you feel like you're struggling with any kind of mental health issue, um, uh, psychology today is a great resource, just psychologytoday.com. Uh, you can plug in your zip code. If you're looking for a therapist, psychiatrist, marriage counselor, you can filter by, um, you know, if, if you have insurance, if you're looking for a male, male therapist, female therapist, uh, your price range, uh, it's a great tool to have. So if you're looking for any kind of outpatient therapy, uh, I would recommend that. If you're looking for any other kind of um, resources, um, not necessarily just mental health, but if you're in any kind of crisis, um, you can always call 211. It's it's less emergent than 911, but like if you, you know, find yourself without a place to sleep or without food um, or you need some other kind of resources, call 211. Yeah. Other than that, just don't be afraid to reach out for help. You can go to the ER if you feel you need that. Um, so those are my mental health plugs. Make sure you get, um, make sure you get a therapist of... from an un uninterested party. You know, if you need to get a referral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't call me. Call someone. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then in terms of media, um, just some uh, bits of media that uh, this movie reminded me of that I think are worth uh, checking out. Um, this movie really reminded me of Mother, uh, 2017, Darren Aronofsky, especially mm -hmm. the first bit when everyone's like following into the uh, apartment sure. building and it's it's just madness. Um, that I thought that that was a really divisive film, which I know Bo is as well. And I, I happened to come down on liking mother as well. So I definitely think that's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And I'm going to recommend reading a hundred years of solitude. I know we talked about it a little bit before, but it's an absolutely fantastic book. Uh, Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. So, yeah. And I think Elijah threatened <laughs> yeah. to spoil it, but didn't actually spoil it. So, you know, uh, or whichever one of you guys is doing. Yeah, so you can do it if you want. I don't know if I will, but it was funny. You said mother because one thing I was going to shout out because I've, uh, you know, I don't know when this is. Yeah, this is probably going to come out after a couple other things I've already recommended. So I would just say a lot of people have also like mentioned this movie like in the same breath as Albert Brooks movies, which are just like you know like not 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 a hundred percent on point, but certainly deal with similar themes in a very different way. So if you like thinking about the kind of stuff we talked about here, but like you're feeling like something that's maybe going to just like make you laugh without trying to like, you know, send you to the same quite so dark place. You know, you can go watch like Defending Your Life or 1996's Mother by Albert Brooks or like Real Life because I think you could say that this movie is like uh, some combination of those three in a way and they're all pretty good movies and Albert Brooks was a really, a, a, like a, a really compelling filmmaker for like, you know, like, like for, for, for just like through the, from the late 70s to the mid 90s and some of his stuff was 
really interesting and he's grappling with a lot of similar things to what Ari Aster is doing, but just doing it in a, in a a probably more digestible, a more digestible, easier to rewatch kind of way. So that is my recommendation for today. Uh, Elijah, any, 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 anything, anything you want to direct the listeners to um, uh, social media wise, it's on Letterboxd. Mr. Smith goes to FL, right? Yep. That's me. Mr. Wait, is it Mr. Smith? Yep, Mr. Okay, like the so, movie Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but oh, Mr. Right, Smith right. goes Mr. to Mr. Smith goes Florida. to FL. Uh, uh, Andrea on Letterboxd is like Amdea, right? Yeah, A M D E A, Amdea. All right. As usual, I'm Josh Trudevoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at rewindmoviepod. Coming up next on the podcast, it will probably depend on uh, my movie going schedule in the next week, which is. In flux because I, again, am losing my theater as people have now heard me like slowly coming to grips with and having a breakdown about on like the last three episodes now. So I don't know what I'm going to see when I might see, I might see Sisu. I might see Evil Dead and do a podcast with our friends, Daniel and Gage. I might see, uh, I, 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 I might do a podcast on Chevalier, which I did see even, uh, I, I just don't know. It's my, my whole life is up in flux. I will have something for you guys though. Within the next week, I promise you that I want to thank Elijah and Andrea for joining me and providing such great insights into a movie that left me kind of befuddled. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. We will see you next time.